Can the Celtics even up their series versus the Heat? How good is Jason Tatum? What are the keys for Miami? The only question left is, say it with me, you in? Hey sports fans, Coach Nick here and welcome to the B-Ball Breakdown Podcast. I am so excited to have Jared Weiss back on the show to join me to do a podcast today. Uh, Jared, as always, it's a pleasure to have you back here and to talk a little bit of the NBA. And I always regret returning. <laughs> I will try and change your mind on this time and so you, say that you will enjoy it this time. So, But uh, you might not enjoy it so much because the Celtics are down 2-1 to one in their series. And I was kind of like getting all excited about the heat and the underdog story and how they were just kind of like shooting the crap out of the ball and making the Celtics look bad. Um, are, the, are the Celtics truly back in the series? Yeah. I mean, yeah, obviously. We we knew they'd be better with Gordon. We we knew that that would even things out for them. Uh, the fact that they destroyed Miami and then, of course, let them back is both completely shocking and then completely unsurprising. I guess maybe the unsurprising part is that they or the surprising part is that they were able to kind of hold them off and they didn't completely blow it. Uh, but having Hayward back, it just provides consistency for their offense and it gives Tatum and Brown a little bit of time to breathe, which they really need. And we saw that it reflected in them having their two best performances of the series in that game. So I think having Hayward back, it fixes most of their issues. Um, and then the other big thing is, you know, John Hollinger made this point in our uh, roundtable on the athletic.com, of course, um, where you can subscribe for $1, uh, blah, blah, blah. blah. Uh, and uh, he, but he made a really good point about how, and I, I thought I, th- I thought about this before the series started and no one really seemed to think it was uh, or it really mattered. So um, I kind of let it go. But the Celtics came into the series with a major um, stamina disadvantage besides the fact that it's the heat and they are the most energetic team and they have the most stamina and all that kind of crap. The heat had like a relatively easy short first round series or second round series. You know, they weren't. They they weren't you know fighting tooth and nail with Milwaukee for a lot of the parts of that series. While the Celtics Raptors series, almost every single game was insane down to the wire, constant scrambling, constant insane defense, transition play, all that kind of stuff. So the Celtics had way more mileage coming into the series on their legs, and I think getting back Hayward helps in that it reduces the minutes burden and just the activity burden on their other main guys and then having this big break for them to really get some rest in here, get some time to work, get actual practices in with that with Hayward. Don't forget as good as Hayward looked, he literally hasn't practiced or had him practice on the floor with the team before he returned, which is kind of people don't realize like his return was amazing because he literally never even had a practice before he returned, which you just, you know, never happens. Right. So, there's just so much stuff that's going in the Celtics' uh, uh, favor. Favor. I almost said flavor. Um, and so I think they'll be the flavor of the week when they probably tie it up in game two. But Spolstra's, I think Spolstra's been the best coach in the league this year. And so I would expect that by game five, he's going to have some sort of really good wrinkle to give them a chance to have a chance to at least take the lead back. Right. But I think we're seeing the the Celtics in theory that are more, that clearly are better than Miami when it comes to talent and capability when they're at their theoretical best. We saw like a pretty clear peak at that in last game. 
So if that continues, I'd assume that Boston's going to take the series. Wow. Okay. Yeah, Bam, I think it was reported that Bam said that they have some new wrinkles already for game th- uh, four. Uh, they're going to break out. So we'll see what that is. My main interest in that statement would be, is he, is it offense or defense? I, I would almost want to think it's defense. They're going to do some more wrinkles with their 2-3 zone. But uh, they also need to figure out how to get uh, Goran Dragic uh, out of that funk that he was in. And again, I, I did the video. I, I didn't see a whole lot of evidence that Marcus Smart guarding him a little bit more than than he did in game two had this big effect. You know, a couple times he denied. I mean, I went through every possession when they were both on the court together and he was guarding him. And, uh, you know, and so maybe that's part of it. Like, okay, I'm going to be denied. So now I got to like cut around more and sprint to get open. And that kind of wore him out or something. It was weird. Uh, but let me circle back to Gordon Hayward for a second because, you know, his stats weren't exciting. You know, two for seven, 30 minutes, plus, plus one, plus minus, when a lot of the other guys had higher plus minuses. So what about his play? You know, give me one specific that you feel like, you know, brought back all the good vibes for the Celtics. Is he wasn't he was taking away probably ten per ten points worth of mistakes on defense that the Celtics were making before. Um, he just he there's so many possessions where Miami has somebody rolling through the paint while the ball is moving around the edge, and the Celtics would be out of position. They would be flat footed. They wouldn't be moving with the flow, and somebody would get open. And he just takes away those plays because he moves he moves with this kind of steady balance, but readiness to change his, you know, his his position or his attack at any moment. There was this one play that I focused on that I wrote about after the game um, where he I can't remember exactly what was happening on the ball side, but he was guarding Jimmy Butler, who was in the dunker spot. And he had kind of switched on to Jimmy Butler because I think Daniel Tice, it was Bam was posting up Kemba Walker in the high post. Tice was coming over to double and try to bail out Kemba. Was doing a really bad job at it, frankly. It was like way too slow. And so Hayward was caught in this really tricky position where he had to cover Jimmy Butler in the dunker spot, which is an easy assist for Bam, but also be ready to sprint out to the weak side corner where I think Kelly Olynyk was. And sure enough, when the double came, Bam threw that pass to Olynyk. And what he did so well was he had positioned himself where he was fronting Butler, Mm -hmm. but was keeping one foot on the other side of Butler so that he could immediately go into a sprint without getting clipped off by Butler. And he managed to sprint and contest a shot and force the miss. And so he defended the entire weak side by himself and he was able to force a miss. And that's the kind of stuff that the Celtics were just getting killed with. In those first two games, and Duncan Robinson killed them a couple times in that game with that as well. And you, you know, you expect to you expect that to happen with Duncan Robinson. But you know, the Celt- uh, the Heat, they have three poisons: they have Dragic, they have Butler, and then they have all the shooters that Bam can find. And they managed to keep it down to one poison in Game Three. And Hayward just had a huge part of that because he's just such a smart defender. Gosh, okay, that's great. That's the kind of thing that I would notice, and I didn't really. But I, you know what? When I went through the footage later, I couldn't see the game live. I really focused. I didn't focus as much on Hayward's minutes anyway. I was really hyper-focused on, you know, Dragic and uh, Smart um, and then Brown and Tatum, how they were generating their scores. Um, and so that's something I missed, but that's a great, like, thank you for, for filling that in. That makes a lot of sense. And you painted a wonderful picture, by the way, I could really see uh, how that unfolded. So, uh, well, if, years of working with you, I've started to get a little <laughs> bit decent at this stuff. If only we had like, you know, this is a video uh, show. We could show that too, but that, that'll be, that'll come one day. Trying to listen and learn on a screen can be a challenge, but not when you're using masterclass. 
You can learn an incredible amount with the highest production value by heading over to masterclass.com and choosing online instruction from over 75 experts in their fields. Even their YouTube ads are mesmerizing. I never skip them. And can't wait to dive into Ron Howard's film directing class and Neil deGrasse Tyson's scientific thinking course. I'm going through Steph Curry's masterclass on shooting, and it's been eye-opening to say the least. And no one has studied his shooting mechanics more closely than I have, and yet I'm still learning things straight from the source. I highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited access to every masterclass, and as a B-Ball Breakdown listener, you get 15% off the annual all-access pass. Go to masterclass.com slash b-ball, that's masterclass.com slash b-ball, for 15% off Masterclass. You know, you've done some stuff about dipping, uh, or actually, actually, you're more of the focus was on the eyes and the ball on the release, but Duncan Robinson, there's this big thing about, you know, how he doesn't dip, and they had a little shot of that, whatever. You know, The bounce pass from Bam. Yeah, you can imagine how how annoying it is for me that, okay, he makes two corner threes without dipping the ball, and all of a sudden he doesn't dip the ball at all. When in reality, those are the only two that he didn't dip, you know, across like the last several games, you know, and it's like, and now I'm dealing with this on, on Twitter trying to explain. And um, <laughs> it's really interesting because, first of all, I love the way he shoots. And even, you know, the the no dip is it's like awe inspiring to watch him do it, because, again, most people can't make those very consistently at all. Anthony Morrow was probably the only guy that I could thought could consistently do it. Um and then Clay Thompson is probably the only other guy. But the, 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 but the, it's the same argument that happens with him. Then people automatically say, well, he doesn't dip. And I'm like, yeah, 95% of the shots he dips. It might be a six-inch one and real quick and whatever, which is beautiful. Same with Duncan Robinson. But I just wonder uh, if you have any feelings about that and what the the myths are and how they get out there. I Well, I think it's that he's one of those guys that dips so fast that you just don't even see it. Yeah. You know, there's like like people – most people think Steph Curry doesn't dip the ball. But he does. Right. It's just you have to slow it down to see it because it's so that's why they're incredible. Yeah. Um, but I, I think what makes Duncan special and, and Clay's the same way, which is that with them, it's that if they catch it up at chest level, they can get their elbow down before the catch so that they can start pushing through on the catch and they don't need to do the dip. And that play where Bam bounced it to him and he started doing the ball raise before the ball got into his hands, that was like magic. Like I've never seen anything. I'm sure it's happened before, but mm-hmm. I've never seen that before. And he practices so, that. So we see that, which is yeah. another one of those amazing things where he's, he's now transcended like shooting, you know, this is, this is upper level kind of thing that you would, you wouldn't teach necessarily until you got to the NBA. Um, and you know, even or if be- you go to Williams College, or Williams College, or yeah, go to uh, the Berkshires to learn this stuff. Y- wait, you don't think that Beeline gave him anything when he was there in yeah, Michigan? Because yeah. Beeline has this whole shooting system that he doesn't want to share. He's kind of a jerk about that in that sense, where he thinks it's like some magic uh, secrets and he doesn't want anyone to know. And I think really? we know what they are, but um, you know, it'd be nice to hear from him. But um, although it's funny, because I've so never uncollege coach like. Oh, I know. Share it. Yeah. I know. I, I remember asking Stauskas about it once. And he he kind of tried to poo poo the effect uh, that he you know of any training special training he might have gotten in Michigan. He's like, yeah, I kind of feel like I would have been got made the NBA no matter where it went. And that's that's great. It's a testament to his hard work. But I was trying to get out of him. I'm like, hey, did they give you any special amazing stuff that like got you to the elite shooter in, in college and into the pros? And he was unwilling to give up anything, any kind of credit, which would normally be a softball. And um, yeah. I couldn't quite get it out of him. So uh, I don't know. Um, but it's Can't interesting. Can't give away the sauce. 
That's right. Too bad. Let's see what happens to him now. Comes Castillo. Oh. Yeah. Don't credit Beeline, then you're out of the league, right? No, he's he's still in the league somewhere, right? Saskas, I think this was the first year that he was completely out. But yeah. I'm going to Google that while I say something. Okay. Um, or I could say something while you Google, too, if you like. Um, what should I say? Uh, okay. What's going to so – here's the thing. You, you're confident that game four goes to Boston. You think that Spolster might make some other adjustments because he's such a great coach in game five. That, that, that might give them the, that game. So, but if that's the case, and if I'm reading this, what you're saying, right, you, you think that the Heat could take game five but then lose a series? Yeah, I could I could see the – because the Celtics, Celtics would just need to win two in a row at that point. I could see them pulling that off. They, right. um, it, It's possible. And I'm, I'm not super confident that they're going to win game four. I just expect they're going to win game four. Uh, but – there, all everything that we saw that changed for Boston in Game Three, I think, is sustainable. And we saw that they lost the first two games. My or Miami won the first two games because the Celtics let go of the rope and allowed them to make an incredible comeback. Miami, I mean, all of Miami's players after Game Three, they're all saying we keep we can't keep playing from behind because we're seeing that it's just not sustainable, especially against a you know a juggernaut two-way team like the Celtics like the Celtics are a top four offense top four defense they're not gonna they're not gonna flail like this for too long um and the Celtics have had bad shooting luck and a lot of you know the Kemba Walker is still not hitting his go-to shots like there's guys that are not that are underperforming in this series Tatum as huge as his numbers are his finishing's been pretty bad in the series oh yeah you know, every once in a while Miami blows the defensive coverage and he gets to the rim but when he's attacking Bam or he's getting, you know, and they're they're not, um, what do you call it? They're, he's not able to get around the defender's hip from the perimeter. He's putting up terrible floaters, and he's been doing that a lot. And you know, it's it's amazing that <laughs> he's putting up like historic numbers, and he still isn't even playing his game nearly as well as he was, like in the first round, for instance. I mean, it just shows how far Tatum has to go still, and how great a player he's probably going to be. But there is so much more that the Celtics can can do to beat Miami in the series. So I, I, I just, I feel like neither of these teams are playing up to their full potential right now. Yeah. Um, and I think they're going to get better and better and better as the series goes on. I don't think Jimmy Butler is going to be that much of a ghost offensively again. Right. Or Dragic. So I, I think, yeah, everything you might say that's, that's sustainable for the Celtics, you could flip it for the heat too and be like, that's probably sure. not sustainable. Like Dragic probably will get to 20 points. And, you know, so here's the thing with Butler that you mentioned, like he, he can play the role of, you know, the, the, the MJ style role, right. That lead guard who's going to put everybody on his back and carry them to the finals or carry them, you know, all the way to the end of the fourth quarter and score when they need him. Uh, but and then he disappears. It's very strange, like as if he doesn't quite believe it yet that he could be that guy, and so he disappears and doesn't have that same effect across the board. It's kind of interesting to me, uh, which leads me to believe that maybe that that's why the Heat aren't quite ready. They don't have the experience. Whereas at least with you know Brown, Tatum, uh, who else? Uh, who else has conference finals experience in this team? Smart, smart. You know, yeah. and by the way, Smart probably won't go over two from the three point line again because he had been shooting so well in the other games and shooting more threes. Although I suspect that most of the reason why he only took two was because they were up, right? And they sort of were, you know, not. And he to, was getting to, he was getting to the line a ton. He was attacking really well in that game too. Right, right. Um, and also, Boston had a ton of transition possessions when they were really scoring while he was on the floor, where he just you know they didn't need him to be a three point shooter. Sure. 
And it's, you know, it's well documented between you and I in the text that, like, I, I still, I like Jalen Brown better than I like Jason Tatum, even though Tatum has, can, t- can make so much more difficult shots. Um, to me, I don't know if that speaks enough uh, for me because I like Brown's, I think that, and I try to make it on the, uh, clear on Twitter that Brown takes more makeable shots more consistently for him. And in my mind, I like that better. Um, you know, I, he, he can't make the step back crazy stuff that, that Tatum does. He won't take those, you know. And so, and then Tatum will, he will, he will go to the basket with his arm, eyes down and get stripped or lose the ball and turn it over times that are like, what is, what is it now? And I have to keep reminding myself, the guy is 20, what is he, 22? Tatum is 22, yes. So I have yeah. to keep reminding myself of that because even though he's played for, this is his fourth year, right? Or third year or fourth year? Fourth year for Jalen, third year for Tatum. So it's the fourth year, for, uh, third year for Tatum, and you know, you know, that's that's a lot of experience at this point. But I have to keep reminding myself that there's years before you know that he that he can iron that stuff out. You know what I mean? And meanwhile, Brown is a little bit older and has a little bit more experience just from being older, um, and so he might look a little bit more polished in that sense. But I do feel like. I don't know. I mean, the defensive things that we've seen Brown do in the series have been, I think, at times overwhelming. Now, you can probably point to some plays that Tatum have done as well, but I feel like Brown's been better overall. Um, so uh, I don't know. I, I still feel like Tate, Brown would be the guy that I would say has sort of the higher ceiling in a five-on-five team f- framework kind of a thing. I don't know if I agree with that. Um, I would say that they're just I, I mean they're perfectly complementary players i think that that's the most incredible thing about what, what Ainge and boston have pulled off is brown is the perfect complementary score and tatum is the perfect lead score tatum's able to do all the little things in between and take the most difficult pull-up shots when the offense or when the defense completely shuts him down brown that's not really a strength but brown is an elite catch and shoot shooter he's one of the best catch and shoot guys in the league now um he is he's one of the best players attacking closeouts in the nba now he's an incredible finisher who can jump you know he's got a 40 42 inch vertical with great power and great body and wrist control in the air he can finish with both hands so he can finish in all sorts of ways that tatum can't quite do yet and i think was it was i talking to you earlier today about uh tatum having tiny hands no, or, but is no, that, that really was Kevin the case? O'Con- I was talking to Kevin Connor about that. But he doesn't have tiny hands, but his hands are small enough to the point that he can't palm the ball and he has to kind of Dr. J cup the ball when he's trying to finish. And okay. you'll notice Tatum will often bend his wrists because Tatum's like basically double jointed. So he bends his elbow and his wrist back so that he can still like kind of keep the ball one handed and away from people, but he has to kind of cup it all the way back basically. Okay. While Brown, I think his hands are bigger and he has more uh dexterous control of the ball. So, so you see him pull off more acrobatic finishes. The double jointing this is in his wrist is what you're saying? Uh his elbow. His he can bend his elbow backwards. If you look at like a hyperextension? Like, yeah, he can like hyperextend it to the point it's like a uh, it's an obtuse angle essentially. It's Yikes. insane. Yeah, he's super flexible. That's part of what makes Tatum so amazing is he's he's got this huge frame that he's filling out more and more and more. Um, you know, and don't forget, like one of the reasons we're, or one of the things you're pointing to is his age. When he was 19, he was a twig. 22, he's like almost Giannis size. He's having the similar transformation of a Giannis is having. And he's still only 22. He's five years from his peak. Like peak starts at 27 for most wings. He's got he as much as he's improved so far. He has 
almost twice that amount to get to his eventual yeah. peak, most likely. You know, and people have pointed that out to me recently. So I was like, you know, back in the day, 27, 28 was your peak. I, I, it has to be younger only because the dude is going to have been in the league for nine years. So, okay, I guess if it's the absolute peak, but there's going to have to be two seasons before that where we're like almost there. You're talking about very small degrees. I mean, unless you want to like call me, unless you could prove it to me, I will fully acknowledge I'm crazy on this one. But I just, I just, I guess I look at it in terms of how long are you in the league, and it's like if you're in the league for seven years and you're not at your peak yet, then I just find that strange. It doesn't, it doesn't ring, doesn't make sense to me. Well, I think seven years for him will be about twenty six, twenty seven. So I think that's when he'd be entering. I mean, he got into the league at nineteen, so you know he'd be about twenty six, twenty seven. Wait, all right, so did the math here? Seventh year. So yeah, because. T- I mean, you know, like, but to your point, Giannis is in his mid twenties still. He's twenty five, I think. So, you know, Giannis was Giannis peaked relatively early. He peaked basically in his sixth season. In his sixth and seventh seasons, he was the MVP, and he still has more to go. Right. Um, but he he reached the early part of his prime early, relatively early. But if you look back at most of the guys that are kind of finishing up their careers and the super the Hall of Famers that have recently retired, most of them. Like at 25, they were clear perennial superstars. And then 27 is when they started to climb into MVP level. Interesting. Um, so right. I, I think it's I think it's basically like once you're 25, if you've been in the league for five, six years, that's when you're getting to third, second team all NBA most of the time, if you haven't already been there for a while. And then you're climbing into first team all NBA, where that means you're 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 literally like you're a championship favorite player. Um, that's when you get there at like 26, 27 generally, and that lasts for four to five years most of the for most players. But huh. Tatum also is a historically early riser. I mean, he's 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 breaking or setting or tying all these records for young, you know first player under 23 to do this and that. He's tied like. Rick Barry, LeBron, and Kobe Bryant are the three most recent records I remember tweeting out of only players ever under the age of 23 to pull off these certain feats. And it would be like averaging like 25, 10, and 5, stuff like that. So, okay. you know, what he, he's he's hitting a level that's almost unprecedented in NBA, in NBA history. And the only players that have done it are like, you know, top 10, top 20 players of all time. Okay. So he's ahead of the curve for sure. Well, we'll see. And, hey, yeah. if Jalen – if Jalen wasn't, you know, seeding that spotlight to Tatum, who knows? Maybe Jalen would be uh, hitting a lot of those numbers. And by the way, in Game Three, he could put up monster numbers too. Yeah, and I, I have a feeling, like I know I've talked to cer- certain NBA players who've been like, "Yeah, I can do all of the Kyrie dribbling stuff." It's like I just don't, you know, and and I get it because yeah, it's not valuable. Yeah, but like you know, it's but like, like Kemba so, Walker doesn't do that crap. So there's skills there cares about being efficient, right? So, but there are skills there. Like, like could he do step back? You know, threes. I'm sure that Brown works on those and can do them. Now, he doesn't have the audacity to do it or whatever it is. Uh, I don't know, but um, certainly that, that's an interesting thing on how you get into a certain role. And then you know, at some point, you know, they've been playing together for so long now. There's a role that they understand they need to each play that kind of gets them to where they want to go. I just feel like uh, there's just too many sloppy possessions by Tatum that drive me nuts. Uh, but but then again, I had to keep saying the kid is 22. He's 22. That's like, uh, you know, uh, every 22-year-old is going to do that, you know. And we can't, even though he's been playing for so long now, it kind of feels like he should be a grizzled veteran. So I, my math, by the way, must be 
be off then because I, I was thinking yeah, well, if it's not age then if it's number of years in the league then maybe it's like that but like your fifth year you should be like in pretty firm command of all of your you know your skills because like that's as if you went to college for four years and then you know you've now graduated into your manhood I feel like um, and I, it's probably within what we're talking about here the fifth year the sixth year you're getting it's maybe it's splitting hairs but um, so I, I, I have to reserve my judgment I'm, I'm judging Tatum as if he's a superstar you know at 25 already and he's not and that's that's probably what's not fair to him so I keep reminding myself of that and that's uh, so I don't go overboard on that and you know and then and call him out publicly in a podcast like I'm doing now so um, wait so are you saying you don't think right now he's a superstar because is, I, I agree on all the flaws that you're saying but the numbers are undeniable the winning is undeniable I mean it, I mean he he's winning because he's on a great team I mean, if he was on the Pacers, you know, he wouldn't. It wouldn't be the same thing. Like he's, he's he's where he see. is because he's leading a great team with a great coach. So twenty three um, a game, seven boards, three assists, uh, shooting forty five percent and forty percent from three. I don't think playoffs, I'm ready to his numbers say are, his numbers are better in the playoffs because you're looking at the regular season where the first yeah. half of the season his numbers were that great. He's top ten in almost every single category in the box score in the playoffs. Twenty five point three a game in the playoffs, four point six assists, 10, 10 rebounds a game, forty five percent shooting, and then thirty nine percent from three. Yeah, okay. It's I mean, all right. those are border, those are almost Giannis's exact stat line from the regular season. Giannis uh, was what, like twenty nine. 12 and 5 or something like that. Oh, did his assist drop to 5 or is that I thought they were higher, but that, that might be not, that might be wrong. Okay. He got up to like 6 a couple years yeah. ago and then it actually went down a little last couple years. But so, right. you know, he's if he's close enough, if he's that close to the MVP, I think he's clearly in the superstar tier, but he's just cracking in the superstar okay. tier. There's even tiers within the superstar right. tier, right? And what we're learning like about Giannis right now. What we learned about Giannis is that he's really making it clear to everybody that the MVP award is a regular season award. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And and, uh, and so you know if we want to use that as a thing, well, then the regular season for Tatum isn't great. But then I guess we give him the boost because he's doing it when it really matters. So he's going to have to do it another. I need to see it a little bit more. And I, I listen. I know next year in the playoffs he'll do the same thing. I mean he'll score twenty five a game, all that stuff. So it's not like I, he has to prove it again. But as far as a body of work goes, superstar, I'm not ready to quite put him there yet. But um, I, it certainly, I, yeah, I, I could easily say, see us talking about it and then having it be a no-brainer in the future, sooner, later, whenever. Uh, but, you know, and I, I feel like Brown is right there, too. It's, a, it's an embarrassment of riches. You know, those two players right now um, for the Celtics, uh, you know, really cause a lot of problems, which is interesting because I thought that that was going to be the problems with the Raptors series between, like, OG and uh, Siakam. Siakam, that would have been, like, the big, you know, two-on-two matchups, but it totally didn't play out that way at all. Right, like well, what one of those guys lived up to his billing? OG was incredible in that series. OG, OG, I thought OG was going to be the Raptors' second best player in that series. Um, I thought Siakam was going to be their best player. Mm-hmm. Lowry shocked. I, I thought Lowry would be great, but I didn't think he would be that great. Lowry played at a Hall of Fame level, and as far as I'm concerned, he locked in his Hall of, Hall of Fame status with that series. Uh, but OG was incredible, and OG I think showed he's going to be an All Star for a while. He's going to be like the new Sean Marion in the league. But Siakam was just such a huge letdown, frankly, on both ends of the floor. Yeah, I was surprised that his, he didn't dominate defensively like I thought he would. And Stevens deserves a ton of credit to that. Um, and then Jalen Brown just deserves all the credit in the world for shutting him down one-on-one. And we saw Jalen did a good job defending, uh, Siakam, uh, not Siakam, uh, Adebayo in the post too. 
I mean, Jalen is evolving into one of the best defenders in the league, which is funny because Tatum gets all the credit because Tatum's amazing at pick sixing in the gaps and he's he's a good rim protector. But Jalen is just like oh, elite point of attack stuff. Yeah, he tortured Siakam uh, at, at times, you know, and it, that that was the thing. I was like, I wanted to say well, it wasn't like Siakam did it to himself, too. It just seems like he was not ready for the moment and was pressing and all those things. But, yeah, he would get near the rim with Brown and Brown would just make him look foolish uh, enough times where you could tell he was thinking about it afterwards. And like for the next time, he maybe not wouldn't go because of that. So, um, yeah, it's and I've been saying, by the way, that's one thing I have been saying for years now, probably from their rookie year, is to have Tatum and Brown the same team um, is really going to be an unfair advantage for the Celtics, without, no matter who else they have around them. Um, let's move on to uh, Billy Donovan news, because I had, you know, predicted. Oh, do you want to? I have one more yeah. question. Yeah. So what do you think of what Marcus Smart is doing right now? Is he elevating towards being an all-star caliber player now that he's showing some ability to hit shots and play make and even finish on offense and draw fouls. Um, I, I have a very complicated relationship, as you know. I called yes. him out in the last video because he's dirty, and I really don't like what, he, what he's doing, all the extracurricular stuff. And by the way, we see Dwight doing it as well, almost in a manic way. I think Dwight was so uh, had all this energy stored up, he hadn't played at all in the Houston series, and he's just like trying to get everything done at once. Um, you know, we, there's a long history of the goon squad people coming in. And so let's use Dwight as an example. We're not, it's not what Smart's doing. And, you know, you throw in your center and you go beat on Kareem. Like Greg Kite used to go in for the Celtics and beat on Kareem with six sure. fouls. Try and get Kareem to fight him, get thrown out. You know, that was what, that was the purpose of that, right? Which, which back in the day was like, yeah, that's a good strategy or whatever. But I don't know. I'm really just, I, I guess I've gotten... I don't know what it is, if it's a purist or something. I want the game to be purer than that. Uh, Marcus Smart, if he would stop doing that stuff, you know, like I had the one where he tries to box out Bam out of bio on the free throw line and take out his legs, and then he kind of trips him. I'm convinced that he kicked out his leg when Goran Dragic went down in the middle of the court on the way up at the end of one of those quarters. Uh, people wanted to push back on him. I'm like, and I'm like I, I hear you. I, don't, I, I, could, I, I guess I could probably see it either way. There was, there was just some sort of interesting notion where he's, his, right, his right leg sticks right out quickly uh, as he's passing by and trips him up. So that stuff drives me nuts. I don't like it. And then the fact that he'll hit a few and then he'll start, that gives him a carte blanche to take some really bad shots. Even still, uh, I'm just not ready. I'm not ready to go there to be in the Marcus Mark camp. And I should be because as a coach, you would love players like that who give all out on defense, they're taking charges and they're playing, they're getting hands active and they're really playing as hard as they can. You should love that. But um, it's a little too inconsistent and I'm concerned about him and all the little stuff he's doing on the outside that could, that's just not, to me, not part of the game anymore when it might've been at one point. So that's my answer. So my only follow-up would be, do you feel that he is, I guess, an elite impact defender? And then, therefore, if you do, does him basically being like a 18-point-a-night, 38% shooter from deep, five assists a night kind of guy gets to the line six times a night, If is that enough offense for him to be you know, a, a considered you know, a great starter, like a borderline max player or a borderline all-star player? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um... Probably uh, on paper, yes. On paper, yes, without question. Um, you know, as we saw after game two, 
And by the way, kudos to whoever calmed everybody down and got everything back together. Um, but it could have gone the other way pretty quickly, right? That could have ended the season. And I know they're going to be like, a, he, and, and it was nice words they had to say about him, that this is who he is and we accept him and we're all part of a team. And listen, anybody who's ever been around a team knows that that happens, right? It, you know, when you're down 2-0 in a desperation situation, that's the last, that you probably don't want that to happen there. That's kind of not optimal. But um, but so that would be my thing. It's like, geez, uh, I, I need some more evidence. I need some more data uh, on on the chemistry, how all that fits together. I mean, we found out now from the Clippers, right, that there, there's some people who don't like each other on that team, which is really strange. Uh, did you see this in reporting? I think it was in The Athletic, uh, this notion that Paul George is, is a guy that they don't like. Now, I know Paul George. I've known him since he was a rookie. Like, this is he's a great guy and a great teammate. And I just don't understand how that could have gotten out there where it's like they don't like him. Is that is that is that clear in your mind that that was a reporting? Yeah, it was from Shams. Um, I, I don't. Well, I remember Shams saying in his report that players were rolling their eyes at PG telling everyone we need to stick together and everyone needs to come back next season and we need to give this another run. Because one, what he said about how they weren't championship or bust was certifi- certifiably false. There was like. Literally examples of him saying that his championship or bust earlier this year, too. Even if he didn't think that way, everybody else sure as hell felt that way. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> like, right. how could you say that after, you know, while you and Kawhi are on two year deals? That's absurd. Um, and three, he, you know, pandemic P or um, way off P, which was the funniest joke I've heard in a long time. I mean, he was so bad in those games and was so disjointed. Frankly, for the whole season, was disjointed from the rest of that offense. That team tried to find a way to mimic what the Raptors did last year where they have ISO or pick and roll ball between Kawhi and PG and then their great pick and roll dive system with Lou and, and Trez. And, you know, we're seeing in the playoffs, you can take away the Lou and Trez pick and roll pretty easily or you can just attack them on defense to the point that they're unplayable. So then can you run an offense without those guys running their you know two man game? And the answer was no. And right. Because PG was not shot making or playmaking well, he was playing like crap. Yeah, and, and for what it's worth, you know, Lou went to his strip club and violated the bubble, and then probably didn't really ever come back. You know, he left he left whatever was he was good about him in Atlanta at that strip club because he it just seemed like he never got it going at all in the bubble, and it was strange. He was not you the think same so? player. Yeah, I mean, certainly in that in this in the last series, uh, you know, they just lost. It, like Lou was not really a factor. I felt like he was weird, missing easy shots, and just sort of seeming tentative. It, I, I didn't recognize that player at all, and that was strange. Yeah, to me. I mean, him and Trez definitely looked like guys that didn't have any time to warm up before the playoffs. There was no question about that. Yeah, and they weren't the same. But also, I think Trez just got ex- exposed, and. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I want to go back and look word at on the street is he's word on the street is he's going to get the mid level next year. So he missed this whole his whole idea of Trez getting an 80 million dollar deal somewhere or something like that. Sounds like that's out the window. Um, he's going to have to probably take a one year deal and try again uh, yeah. next offseason. And that really sucks because a lot of that is just related to the fact that he had a death in the family and missed all that time. I really you know, he was out of shape. Yeah. You know, it's really too bad because uh, he deserves. I mean, he really is when he's at the top of his game. He is that guy who deserves you know, 80 million bucks, I'd imagine something like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, he deserves 80 million bucks from the Hornets or something like that. But no, <laughs> okay. The, this conversation was happening. I mean, obviously I feel terrible for what happened. Like, obviously that was horrible. Um, and I think it was admirable that he managed to come back and play, at least play as hard as he did. But I didn't think him being out of shape or rusty or not playing hard was the issue. I think it was that he was exposed for not being a good defender 
Um, and Jokic just tore him to pieces, basically. And, you know, every once in a while, they could get him into the post and he would explode past Jokic and throw it down and do the stuff he does. But there's been this problem the entire year. The, the failure for the Clippers was that Doc wasted the entire season not figuring out how to close with that team. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I've had so many conversations with Jovan Buha, or athletic Clippers writer, people around the Clippers, people in L.A. about, like, why doesn't Michael Green close games? And apparently, in Shams reporting, apparently not using Jermichael Green enough was one of the things that the team was upset about. Because Jermichael Green is the perfect center to close NBA games with. He's a reliable shooter, a smart and capable defender, um, and he can switch. Like he's he's kind of the perfect guy to close with, especially if you surround him with guys that can score and you don't really and all you need him to do is just be a spot up shooter. And they had so much success with that when they were the underdog Clippers a year ago, and Doc went away from a lot of that stuff that worked for them. They they also never got much out of Landry Shamit this year after Shamit was so promising. weren't weren't you and I talking about how we thought Shamit was going to become like the best shooter ever, basically? Yeah, and people are they still bring up that tweet because here's what I said. I put a caveat in there. I said if Doc can figure out the offense and get you know Kawhi and um, Paul George sort of you know operating optimally, which he never really did either, uh, Shamit could be the first high volume three point shooter to break fifty percent. Now. Do you know what he's he shot? Totally reasonable. Do you know he what he shot? Sh- I just look. He shot forty five percent on six attempts with the Clippers last year. So like that's as a rookie, that's incredibly reasonable to think he can improve by five percent over the course of his career. This year, thirty seven and a half percent on five and a half attempts. He was hurt this year. He missed a bunch of games. He only started half the games. Um, bringing up his playoff right now. Playoffs per game, thirty five and a half percent. He was only playing 18 minutes a night. He wasn't starting most of these games. I mean, this was a I'm, – I'm not going to make any judgments about Shamit's future based on what happened this year. Yes, but here's here's my point because I'm looking this up. I'm kind of doing it on the fly right now. But do you, were you aware of what he shot during the season when he was on the floor with Kawhi Leonard and Paul George at the same time? No idea. Uh, I want to say 55%. Here it is. Uh, really? Three-point percent shooting. Landry Shamit uh, – Oh shoot! They must have included. Oh, this is it says forty eight point two, but that's including the playoffs. And if you don't, let's see. When did the playoffs start? August thirtieth or something like that? Or let's go. Uh, let's cut up yes. on the twentieth really quickly. Let August me see if it changes. Uh, oh, the fifteenth because I I know that for most of the season he was way over fifty percent. Yeah. So here it is. If you ended at eight twenty on August twentieth, he was shooting fifty five percent from three. On does it tell me how many attempts? Uh, three point attempts. I mean, only 30 attempts, he, you know, they, and that was the point. They barely had any time together because not only was PG hurt, but then Kawhi was load managing as well. So my whole point was always that if he's going to start and play most of his minutes alongside PG and Kawhi, which is what was going to happen, he was going to get most of his shots completely wide open. <laughs> they would have been amazing, easy shots for him to make. And he's already a good shooter. So that's why. So that so I think that the reasoning was sound and it was a little bit bombastic, but he never got a chance. He got hurt too. So... At any rate, if they ever figure that out uh, going into the next year and he starts alongside them and, get, and he'll play his 12 minutes a game alongside them and probably take his four or five threes with them and then you know he'll get another couple which he'll shoot 40%. But overall, I think he'll get really close if not over 50. So I don't think it was that crazy and I know people are going to be still rolling their eyes, but um, that's what I'm here for. I'm here to get, my, their, to get eyes rolled at. 
but no, you're to- you're totally it's yeah. still totally something to expect for him in yeah. the future. I mean, listen, that already got buried underneath my take on having Jokic guard LeBron because, and we can go into that for a few minutes. We'll wrap this up in a sure. minute. You know, we, maybe Please. we'll take a one minute on the Donovan thing. But uh, you know, my whole thing is Jokic cannot guard AD. We're gonna find out what happens tonight in a little bit, but he cannot guard him. I've seen enough evidence now where it's just not gonna happen. But when they go AD in in the center position and Jokic is out there, they they keep thinking they have no choice. But I keep saying no. Put Grant on him. Put um, even by the way, Tory Craig. Like maybe there was something there that caught my eye that maybe would work. Certainly better than Jokic. And then have Jokic guard LeBron, give him eight eight to ten feet, and you know, dare him to shoot it. Now we saw like that happened a few times in game three, but by the way, I got roasted for this. And you know, Laker fans are just, you know, generally awful people on Twitter, the Twitter Laker (laughs) fans. So that's, I don't want to, you know, by the way, I'm I'm generalizing every Laker fan and I shouldn't, but whatever, it's his Twitter. Uh, But it was horrible for like days. They wouldn't shut up about it. But the point being that, you know, he could do a Diaw on him from 2013 and just dare him to shoot, uh, you know, from the outside. Uh, he did get a spin move on him, on a, had a steam going on a pick and roll where he like sagged off. So it would be somewhat of an equivalency there. And he, and you know, LeBron made him look really horrible when he laid it up. But then again, who doesn't LeBron make look horrible? Almost all the time. There isn't anybody in the league that stops him anyway. So it's not like all of a sudden, oh, he's going to light up LeBron, but oh, he wouldn't light up anybody else in the team. Oh, my God. And that was like what was so stupid about this whole conversation. They owe it to themselves uh, to try it. And I I think maybe they will. We'll see. So I – and of course we're saying this before game three happens. Um, I think I would try that at the beginning if you're going to try it. Okay. Not late. Because two reasons. One, Jokic is going to get tired. I don't care how. I don't care if it seems like he has no stamina, like unlimited stamina. There's no way guarding LeBron is not going to tire him out to a degree. And two, once he gets a little bit tired, a little sluggish on defense, LeBron is going to rack up fouls on him and get him in foul trouble. And that's, yeah. I think that's the main argument against it. It's just that if, if and if LeBron sees Jokic guarding him he's going to attack Jokic so he's going to change his game plan to try to get Jokic into foul trouble and if Jokic has to sit they're screwed they're going to lose they need him on the floor for 44 minutes a night so yeah I, I would so I would try it at the beginning of the game where it's like at least if it's one foul you know that you're he's not in foul trouble yet it's predictable you have more control over the situation, and he's fresh at that point. Yeah. So you expect his defensive stamina to be a little bit better. But so that, that, try that at the beginning of each half, I guess. But you can't do that because they go big in the beginning of the half. He has to guard JaVale. So you only do it when AD goes to center, which is probably somewhat early, but I don't think it really happens until like the second quarter, which I think is still fine. Um, I just think it doesn't it's happen those, at the six minute mark. Oh, uh, well, they, 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 they take LeBron they out. Don't they take LeBron out early in the first quarter these days? Like in the weird Dirk sub, sub? I'm like, am I losing my mind? I can you check it real right. quick. Yeah, um, yeah. but, uh, and by the way, LeBron was out in a weird way too, in the last game. Uh, and they put him back in with about like six and a half minutes left. Like there was a weird stretch when he should have been in in the fourth quarter and they didn't like, I don't know what was going on. I guess they're trying to ride out a little bit of a, a lead, but LeBron here, for instance, yeah, LeBron goes out at like, you know, five minutes left in the first quarter. Um, and that's around when JaVale goes out. So that, that would be the moment where they can kind of do it, but it's not right in the very beginning, but it would be riding that end of the first. Uh, so yeah, anyway, yeah, they, gonna- they bring in, so they bring in Kuzma for JaVale at the six minute mark and then Rondo in for LeBron yeah. at the seven minute mark. But interestingly enough, when LeBron had a choice to bring somebody up to force switches, like down the stretch, he was calling out for Murray, not for Jokic, which I thought was really interesting. I don't know why. 
Uh, and then plus in game two, uh, uh, this r- r- playoff rookie Dozier, 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 sorry, Dozier, blocks him and fouls him, no call, takes a charge on a flop, and they give him, they give him a charge. Like, uh, if I were LeBron, I might have been a little bit concerned too, thinking like, what is going on here? I'm, I'm LeBron. These are my calls. How can you not give them to me? I, I, it was shocking. Was the foul, did he catch LeBron's right wrist on the follow-through when he blocked him? It, it looked like it. It looked like a pretty clean block, but it's possible he followed through. I went through frame it by frame. It looked like he was getting mostly ball, though. Provocative move, big arm swing, like just the, the typical foul like that LeBron would get every time. And you saw certainly LeBron. It wouldn't be the first time LeBron would be claiming that he got hit when he didn't. But, uh, yeah. but the point being, in the fourth quarter, at the last, I think it was like a few minutes to go, like that's just an automatic whistle, and I and I was just blown away that he didn't get that call. The, the charge might have been worse, and then Millsap is sort of easing him into it with his left arm and his, his back. But he just flopped, and they gave it to him. It's amazing. Um, I probably so, would have called a foul on Millsap for that anyway. So, but it happens. It was so bang bang that you know I didn't even see it in real time. So. No, I neither did um, I. Yeah, it's an old pro, pro trick. But when you see it, you're like, oh yeah, you can see what he's doing, and it didn't quite work because he didn't carry into him really enough. You just saw you saw Dozier just having to like you know snap his head back like he got shot and then fall down and they gave it to him so uh all right really quickly uh thoughts on donovan in uh in one minute is chris dunn gonna still start if donovan's there that's the thing that's really interesting okay there's a reason why that's a connection and i'm forgetting did chris dunn play for Dilly donovan oh no just just because chris dunn's not a good offensive guard and well i mean he improved last year yeah but so donovan's had so much success with having multiple guards on the floor that can play make and shoot and it's going to be and so obviously zach levine fits that kobe, kobe white. white fits that mold so the question is is dunn gonna also start um maybe uh, yeah. I mean, i'm trying to think of like who would be their wings that would well, make sense to, and, so, yeah, and well, so i think kobe white starts without without question and i and i think you know levine starts and then you know marketing on one wing you know they could play him at the four i suppose who else is and left they want Otto Porter to be healthy. That's like their big, yeah. their big question. So Porter and Markinen, and then somebody at the center spot. Um, uh, what do you call it? Carter, obviously. Oh yeah. Um, there you go. That's and then you know, and then so I guess Thad Young will come off the bench. Sadoransky will probably come off the bench at that point. Yeah. Um, I think Sadoransky started be right. Wasn't Sadoransky starting? And I, that was not he a good did role start for him. Kobe was coming off. The, well, I thought it was fine, but. Kobe, uh, Kobe White, I think was coming off the bench for the most part. Yeah. Um, you know, and I guess so done to a degree was playing small forward last year since he was out there with two other guards. Yeah. Kobe White only started one game last year. Okay. So, so they're going to unleash him. Yeah. I I guess it makes sense. It just, it just doesn't seem to fit what Billy Donovan has had a lot of success with. Yeah. But I'm shocked. I thought he was going to be working with there. I thought here's the thing: you don't quit the OKC job unless you already have something like ready to go. So, you know, you just said that Waz had um, had reported that um, you know Chicago weeks ago. Uh, I you know no one picked that up, no one said it. I, I had been I was sure the day that he left is like oh he's got something else lined up, and it just seemed natural. Like David Griffin had I think had courted him to Cleveland when he was at the GM there. So I was like boom, that, there's your connection there. They're going to get him, uh, and instead he goes to Chicago, which is a shock to me because you know New Orleans is a nice situation to be in, and we could also fit with what he'd want to do. Maybe Chicago's got more money to throw at him. Who knows? But I mean, the reason he left OKC is because OKC is going to strip down. I mean that's. That's right. Unless, in case people don't know, it's they're gonna they're gonna do a whole they're gonna do a fire sale now. Um, so he just you know Donovan wanted to coach a you know a competitive team. And hey, it's the East. You know the East only has 
four or five good teams at a time, basically. So you can, you know, the Bulls with a, you know, with, I mean, after what happened last season, the Bulls with any semblance of an offense and, and a coach that the players don't hate, they could do stuff next year for sure. I mean, you can find a way to, to cover up for Zach Levine's defense. Mm-hmm. The guy's putting up elite scoring numbers. Marketing had a down year. Kobe White showed that he's got lots of promise. Like, they're, they're, this can change. The situation could change really quickly. Carter was being terribly underutilized. Put him in a good pick and roll system with a point guard that can find him. I mean, the, Carter could turn into a really good player really quickly. Um, and then they're going to have a good draft pick. And there's tons of wing shooters available in the draft that can complement what they're, you know, kind of bring them something that they're missing on this team. Absolutely. Someone that can like shoot, that can be like a spot up shooter that can attack and do some creativity stuff. They only have Levine's the only person that's like a reliable shooter right now. And obviously marketing when he's on. So their other guys are all, you know, mostly drive and kick kind of guys that can kind of shoot. So there's plenty of talent in this draft for them to add another, another piece that complements this team. Well, this team seems to have a pretty low ceiling, frankly. Um, I feel like they have the potential to turn into kind of what Indiana is at this point when they're mm-hmm. fully healthy, which is a good team for sure, but definitely a team where it's like you don't really see how they can have the ball, you know, the the, the on ball scoring capability to really get to the next level. But they, they do have a lot of good players. The Pacers have not uh, hired anybody either, I believe, but they're interviewing guys like Mike Brown. Um, which is interesting. I thought they would have gone a little out of the box. It turns out, from what I was hearing, that, uh, you know, remember when he was trying to play Sabonis as a, as a stretch, you know, three-point shooting forward guy, I think, uh, at some point. That might have not even been last year, maybe the year before. Something about that, apparently, and the way that they wanted to run their offense uh, was was antithetical to what, what um, McMillan wanted to do. And, like, was just like, I'm out of here. Very strange situation because he, he shouldn't have left. It was, uh, you know, they were doing fine. Um, but who knows how that's going to work? But that's that's another good position uh, if they could find you know that that would be a, a lucrative. I would imagine coaching Oladipo if he's healthy finally. Um, no, you don't like it. Oladipo is not going to be there much longer. Oh really? Yeah, Miami is what I'm here. What I've been hearing for a while now. What's his contract status? Didn't he sign some uh, next year? I think is his last year. Okay, interesting. Because right. remember he signed that deal in OKC and then they traded him. Right. So. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. No extension or anything like that, then. No. No. He's he's probably going to be gone. Okay. And then and then the question is, Miles Turner is Miles Turner going to be gone? There there could be a a lot of shakeups there to build around Brogdon and Sabonis and T.J. Warren now. Although I yeah. think they should be careful about overpaying T.J. Warren. Absolutely. You know, I, I would I wouldn't want to be the team that throws a hundred million dollars at him. For sure. Uh, yeah. well, as much as I like him, it's just like it was a little too flash. Little too flash on the panty uh yeah. outburst for me to, to want to pay him for the bubble player that he was as opposed to the guy who he's been before that, which is a very good player and clearly worth having on your team. And credit to Nate McMillan, same thing he did with Thad Young, he did with uh Warren. He turned Warren into a way better well rounded player who is an absolute monster around the rim. I just don't I just I'd be a little worried about bringing him onto your team thinking he's gonna be a three level twenty five point and eight scorer, and then it turns out he's mostly just like a Rim running, big wing, essentially. Right. Uh, we'll see. We do I a mean, lot for you. Uh, it, it would be an interesting video to do uh, to focus on the players who way outperformed themselves in the bubble because it was a bubble. Uh, I, I know he, to, Warren would be on the top of that list, but there's probably a few other guys who 
I think kind of Jason jumped Tatum. out. Jason. Oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, the Jamal Murray is going to be the interesting one, right? Yeah. Although, well, I got Jamal Murray. If he ever stops jumping before passing, we'll see. Hey, there's a lot of opportunity. There's a lot of reasons to jump. That's okay to pass. There's a lot of instances. So let's not like you know throw that one out. But uh, Wait, jumping the pass is good. Jumping it to shoot it and then going, oh no, I'm going to get blocked. Who can I pass it to while I'm still in the air? Which is what he's doing 80 percent of the time. Not well. Good. Listen, it's not 80 percent of the time. But still, and by the way, sometimes some of those are, are really good choices because like yeah, he's going to get blocked. You got to get rid of it. And I, I in my mind's eye, I can picture him. You know making the pass and it gets to where it's supposed to go uh, some of the time at least but yes i think there was yeah, a couple of good at it but um yeah i you know so i i already got roasted for saying jamal murray could be the best point guard in the league when we're watching him throw 50 pieces up in the playoffs like that against you know these tough defenses and even you know against the clippers he came through i mean he you know 25 point first half against them in this game seven you know listen we forgot about steph and we forgot about uh, you know dame and Kyrie because they've been out but uh you know is fourth that far away from first? <laughs> I don't know. I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, well, you know how I feel about Kyrie. I think he's a little bit overrated. Um, and then, yeah, Steph. We forgot about Steph. Dame. Dame went out like two days before, or, or what do you call it? Like a, a couple weeks before Jamal did. So yeah, it, it's funny how quickly we can forget because it feels like it's been a month and a half since Dame was doing anything, but it's really only been like three to four weeks. But right. Yeah, I but mean, like but also, his floater game is 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 as good as anybody's. His finishing mm-hmm. is really good. His ball handling is fantastic. You know, he doesn't he really pass traps so well. Oh, okay. He, I mean, he does, but it's not like he's he's not a facilitator like that. But that's okay. That's not the role. Uh, his shooting from three is, you know, it's it's really good. It's not. I don't know if it's exactly like Steph level, but it's really good. So it's like he's got all the tools, and we've been waiting for this for a couple of years now. Um, so it's like, yeah, like, you know, give him a, like, at least give him a nod and say, let's put him in the conversation, you know, before, you know, so I guess what I'm just saying is I'm, I'm just a very sensitive person on Twitter. Yeah. Well, I could tell by the time, by the way that you text me once a week going, should I be upset about this? Like, no, <laughs> someone tweeted at you. Don't just throw, throw your phone out the window. Who cares? Yeah. Well, if it's somebody I know oh. though, that's always more interesting, but nonetheless. Oh, that's true. Uh, all right. Well, listen, let's wrap this up. Thank you so much uh, for coming on, Jared, as always. And you know what? Let's let's see if we can't uh, let's see if we can't hook up again, you know, maybe sooner than later. What do you say? Something I love more than hooking up. What can I say? All right. Awesome. You know what? I didn't I didn't regret it. I didn't regret it. this you, time. I knew you wouldn't. I knew you wouldn't this time. Yeah. And you look good, by the way. Are you uh, what are you doing these days? Uh, Peloton. Oh, my life. somebody else just said the same thing to me. And I've been like waiting. I've been, you know, my finger is hovering over the mouse right now. Uh, it's, you, it's so expensive, but it's so worth it. I, yeah. I've never I've never spent you know more than like a hundred dollars and been so satisfied with my purchase in my entire life. Wow. You well, know, I tell it's, you, it's really people it's can't really see you, but uh, it, it definitely I can see right across from the uh, on the Skype that you look uh, a lot better. You look a lot you know thinner and healthier. So if Peloton's Thanks. what it is, let's get them. Uh, let's get them a sponsor over over on this podcast. Yeah, maybe they can refund a little bit of that $2,000 I had to pay for that bike. Oh, all right. Well, listen, Jared, thank you again for coming on. Everyone else out there, thank, for, thank you for coming and listening to us for this time. And uh, I'll be back again next week. Jared, uh, you know, I think we'll, maybe I'll, I'll give you a call again and we'll see uh, if you're available. All right, I'll be sure to answer. All right. And don't forget, sports fans, at B-Ball Breakdown, we're not a channel, we're a conversation. You win. Are you in, Jared? I'm in my Peloton gear.